In this age of streaming entertainment, I am not accustomed to seeing advertisements very often anymore. But when my family was recently on vacation, we turned on the TV and lo and behold, television ads. As we watched through, I realized that something was very different from the ads that I remember from long ago. You see, I know this sounds sad, but I am old enough that I remember the days, not the good old days, just the days, when advertisements showed a person who had bought the product using it for what it intended. You knew what was being advertised because the product was in the advertisement. They demonstrated what you could expect from the product, usually with a hint of emotion that included declaring that using their product would make you happier than using their you know, competitors. I've always wondered about the beer commercials where nobody has a beer belly, but that's another, <laughs> that's another question. But the main point was that the product was, uh, the main point was what the product was and what it could do. But somewhere in there, I don't know, maybe sometime after the turn of the century, maybe in the last 10, 15 years, ads seemed to change a whole lot. The ratio of product demonstration to emotional tugging started to get even more out of balance. You guys will see this when you watch the Super Bowl ads that are coming up in a couple of months. And now it seems that advertisers rarely have anything to do with the product at all. Have you noticed this? You can watch an entire ad, and in many cases, you don't even know what product was being sold. And what you're left with, if you're paying attention, is an unsettling question. Wait, was I just manipulated? You guys have seen it, right? The ad is about somebody going through chemotherapy, and it's getting you crying and you're, you're destroyed and then you realize it's actually a car company that's selling a car. Why would they do that ad? Well, they're trying to manipulate your heart. And the result is that consumers now buy not based on the veracity of the statements about the product being advertised, but on whether or not they agree with the moral stance or emotional philosophy promoted by the seller. On one hand, this is bizarre since the entire retail industry exists to sell things. But on the other, we all have to admit that this is ingenious of Madison Avenue to market this way, because nothing works better than manipulating someone by their emotions. Now, this tendency to pull on the emotions has just gotten more pronounced, but it's always been around. Since the garden, those trying to manipulate humanity have always used dishonest means. And the Bible is clear that we are creatures. You are a creature. I am a creature. And we all vastly underestimate our propensity to be misled and manipulated. We all think no one will ever pull the wool over my eyes. In the days of Paul, as he acted as an itinerant preacher and church planner, he dealt with the same issue. Just a few decades after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, multiple ideological factions began to manipulate the same public that Paul was evangelizing. On the one hand, you had Judaizers who were appealing to man-made traditions and the hold of the synagogue over Jewish converts. But then in the Gentile communities that Paul was working in, you had the influence of trained speakers called sophists. Uh, Sophia is the word in Greek for wisdom. They were purveyors of wisdom. And these men were trained in the art of oratory and public debate. They would give lectures and speeches for payment and the Roman crowds were more than happy to hear all of their opinions on virtue, perfection, and excellence. 
And they were known to use clever turns of phrase in the midst of misleading arguments to draw the attention and loyalty of the hearers, to manipulate them into believing what they said. Now, as Christianity grew, these sophists began to interact with Christianity in a way where it became difficult for Joe Q. Public to determine the difference between a true preacher of the gospel and one of these men who possessed talented speaking skills but had questionable intentions. Their goals were not usually for the betterment of the hearers, but for their own success, their own wealth, and their own influence. It doesn't sound all that different from today, does it? Even now, false spiritual influencers promote themselves as heralds of the gospel, but the gospel they promote is false. Whether it is preachers heralding vapid self-help sermons or self-proclaimed justice warriors convincing the church to devote all of its energy to fixing the ills of a society that will not be fixed, or false prophets proclaiming to read today's news headlines as if they are fortune-telling tea leaves, we have amongst our society similar false preachers and teachers, and they are false because they miss the entire point of Christian ministry. For Christian ministry is first and foremost one thing. It is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. Christian ministry is first and foremost one thing, the declaration of Jesus as Lord. In our text this morning from 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church about a number of circumstances that have created conflict between the congregation and his authority. Factions in the church had formed. Some backed Paul's ministry and authority. Others were against Paul and were instead on the side of these charismatic orators attempting to lead them into a false works-based virtue. Paul sarcastically calls them out, these men, as super apostles in chapter 11 and 12. And he facetiously points out that he is not inferior to them because while his speaking skills are inferior and he might in appearance be inferior, the message that he preaches is exceedingly superior to these sophists. And it is here that he will show us that Christian ministry is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. Now this continues much of what we've already discussed in this series on the Lordship of Christ and the life of the Christian, as it will discuss our need to be submitted to the truth of God. But it will also accomplish something else for us, because at this point in the series, we're going to start changing direction a bit and moving towards application. And so this text this morning will begin to tell us the practical nature of what happens in the life of the Christian to be able to claim that we are under Christ's lordship. We've now heard a number of sermons laying the foundation for the fact that God is the author of truth, and we are not. We have seen that we suppress the truth that God is Lord, and instead we lift ourselves in authority over his word, and we twist it to meet our opinions and intentions. But in this groundwork that we've laid, we have not yet stepped into the practical pieces of what Christ's lordship looks like in the life of the Christian. Our text today will act as a kind of starting point where we will see the beginning of the lordship of Christ in the life of you, a Christian, if you are his. And this occurs at the point of justification when the Holy Spirit grasps the heart and mind of the one whom the Father is saving and illuminates their heart and mind to the truth of the gospel so they can comprehend it and receive it. And this will set the stage for how Christ's rule in the life of the Christian then plays out in practical application in the ensuing weeks. So let's begin with our text in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning, and then we will see how it applies to our lives today. 
This is the word of God. 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. This section sets up this idea that Christian ministry is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. And as we go through it, we will see four descriptors of this ministry. And the first descriptor that he gives is that it is a ministry of boldness, there in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, you will notice right away that the beginning of our text is a connector. It begins with the word therefore, and the rule and understanding, the original meaning of what the author intended when we see the word therefore is to ask, what is it there for? Okay? What is it pointing back to? Some of you are getting used to my bad jokes. That's good. What is it there for? I didn't make it up. I stole it from many men before me. It's the mark of a good pastor. All right. The background for our text today is laid out in the first three chapters. What we see in those chapters is that Paul wants to come to the Corinthian church to fellowship with them, to build them up, to serve them, but he has not yet arrived because he wants them to be able to work out their conflict with him before he comes. It seems there was some form of disciplinary situation going on in the church, and there is debate as to whether or not this is the situation referenced in 1 Corinthians 5 of sexual immorality. It may be, it may not be. But regardless, this is one piece of the conflict that he finds himself embroiled in within the church at Corinth, and he wants their hearts to change, to become wholehearted towards him before he arrives in person. The super apostles I mentioned a moment ago have in the midst of this, as a tool of Satan, bred division in the midst of the church, and this is adding to the conflict. And so at the end of chapter 2, he begins an argument with this as background that moves on into our text today. So we're going to really quickly hit some pieces from chapter 2 and chapter 3. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 2.16. 2 Corinthians 2.16, the second half of it there. He says, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, to show the aroma of Christ, to be Christ in the midst of other people, to proclaim the gospel. Who is sufficient for these things? Because the entire argument was the super apostles seem more sufficient. He says, verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers, salesmen of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, 
In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You can immediately see Paul taking aim at those that would mislead the Corinthians with their oratory skill, with their entertainment style, with their charisma, yet lack the same gospel message Paul is preaching. There might be fog machines and light shows and really great music behind them, but the gospel that is being preached is not the true gospel. He moves on into chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We now see what ministry Paul is referring to in this first verse of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, he says... He and the other apostles have been given the ministry of declaring the new covenant, of enacting it. And they've been given this by God. And it's God that has supplied them sufficiently to complete this task. Paul notes that he knows it is an effective and good ministry because rather than having a physical letter of recommendation that these other orators, these sophists might carry around, a resume, if you will, Paul has the resume of the hearts of the Corinthian church. Their conversion by the Spirit and fruit of salvation is proof for Paul that he and the ministry he is walking in is productive and is of God. And so we've seen what the ministry is here and that it is given to Paul not because of his skill or merit, but by the mercy of God. But what about this not losing heart piece? He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Well, to understand what he's talking about there, we must go a bit deeper in what he means by having this ministry of the new covenant that he mentioned in chapter 3. This is what he's referring to in the last line of what we just read, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter he is referring to is the written law of Moses provided by God. And unfortunately, this is where Paul starts to go in a direction that is a bit hard to track as you read the rest of chapter 3. He begins to use a mental image there in verses 7 through 18 of Moses covering his face with a veil when he would come back from interacting with God and come amongst the people. When Moses went up the mountain and received the commandments of the Lord, he had a ministry, and this was the ministry of being an intermediary for the Old Covenant. God was the sovereign king, Israel was the conquered people, and Moses was the intermediary who was negotiating the peace treaty, if you will, of the Old Covenant. God gave them the law to show the people his holiness and righteousness, but also to hold them to the standard of reflecting that same righteousness to the world. This was the Old Covenant. Unfortunately, as Paul notes in his nickname for the law in chapter 3, verse 7, this covenant did not give life, but rather brought death to the people as a whole. For Israel was not able to obey within their own power. You see, it is an impossibility to legislate 
holiness, or obedience. In fact, what happens to us when you do so is we as humans rebel against it. And Israel became an entirely rebellious people. Having the law was a good thing because it pointed to the truth, yes, but it simultaneously reflected their rebellion. It was not evil in and of itself, but it had no power other than to condemn. The law showed them that they could not keep it on their own. They could not merit relationship with God. They needed help from God. They needed forgiveness from God for their rebellion, and they needed his empowerment to walk in obedience. They could not do it on their own. And Moses knew this. Moses knew this. Look at his words to Israel shortly before his death in Deuteronomy 31. This is not ever going to show up in your K-Love positive encouraging feed. Deuteronomy 31, 27 through 29. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Notice the exclamation mark. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. There's not going to be any huddle or break at the end of that, is there? He's telling them the truth. Friend, perhaps you're here today and you are just simply exhausted because no matter how hard you try to obey God on your own power, you can't seem to do it. You've spent years trying to obey his commands. Every morning you get up and you say, today is the day I will be obedient. Perhaps you're still trying to make yourself better through white-knuckled obedience. Perhaps every sermon you hear is, do better even if that's not the message. Well, if that's you, like Israel, you will have to eventually realize that you cannot obey God in your own power. Not even a little bit. In fact, not at all. If that is you, what Paul is about to say is going to be key to your salvation and your freedom. And because of that, it will be key to your joy in walking with Christ. You see, salvation comes when we admit we can't. In fact, we are opposed to obedience. That's when the Lord works. You see, the law is not evil in and of itself. It's a great gift of God because it speaks of his holiness and righteousness and truth but it has no power to give life or to save. It simply shows us that there is none righteous, not even one, not even you, not even me. And so throughout the Old Testament, prophets came and compared the behavior of the people to the law, and they found that they were lacking. But then these same prophets, in the next breath, gave hope to the nation of God's people that they didn't need to do it on their own because there would come a day where God would make a way for them to be obedient. 
One of the many examples of this statement of promise is in Jeremiah 31. Many of you are familiar with this because we talk about it a lot. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This hope has two parts. At the very end of what he just said, we see that their iniquity of rebellion and faithful, faithlessness will be forgiven. And this will bring them into a restored relationship with Yahweh. But notice that this will be preceded by the Lord pouring out his spirit into the hearts of the people, where obedience to the law of God's righteousness will be a natural outcome of their lives. And this that he refers to is the new covenant, a covenant based solely upon God's gracious gift of salvation, his gift of the Holy Spirit to us, his people, so that we might exist within the covenant. Now, fast forward 650-ish years into the future from the days of Jeremiah and the exile, and he's writing this with this in mind because he knows that this is what will be initiated, but Paul is writing 650 years later with this same idea in mind, knowing that it was initiated by Christ's death on his behalf, his resurrection to enthronement, and the pouring out of his spirit into his kingdom citizen. He notes that the hearts of the people have been changed, like Jeremiah foretold, and this is the letter of recommendation that proves that Paul is operating in this ministry of the new covenant to God's true Israel made up of Jews and Gentiles. Read it again with me in chapter 3. He says in verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, the old covenant, but on tablets of human hearts, the new covenant. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? The new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul and the apostles are trying to get the church to understand God is the one doing the work. You are simply the medium by which his salvation message comes. But his salvation message is what is powerful. The ministry of the law that simply pointed out sin is not removed, but it has on top of it the better, more glorious ministry that gives life because it declares that Christ has ushered in the new covenant. And the hearts of those to whom Paul has preached the gospel are testifying that the new covenant has been inaugurated. For Moses, he veiled his face because the glory of God was so bright in reflecting God's righteousness that it caused the people to shrink away in the knowledge that they were not able to stand in God's righteous judgment. But Paul needs no veil because he can boldly declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And because he has poured out his spirit upon those who are his own, Paul can boldly state that God has empowered his people not only to declare the same message, but to be obedient to his rule as Lord. It is no longer impossible. Now it is possible now because of what Christ has done in ever-increasing manner until we stand in glory. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Very triune statement there. And that is what he's meaning here. For those under the written law, they wanted to keep it, but could not because their hearts were dead in rebellion against God's rule. Anytime that rule was presented to them, their hearts rebelled in bitterness and anger towards God. But for those who are in Christ, we are alive and growing in our ability to obey because every day that we walk in the Spirit, we are being transformed more and more into his glory. Is that a statement of perfection before glory? No, it is a statement of growing obedience, ongoing growth in submission that never stops until we stand before the Lord in perfection. And so he says Clearly, in verse 12 of chapter 3, look there, 3.12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But his whole point is, boldly, without veil. The Christian ministry is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. And friends, it is a bold declaration. Paul says the inverse in the first verse of our text, therefore having this ministry, the ministry of declaring that the new covenant has come in Christ because he is Lord, given by the mercy of God, he says we do not lose heart. Or put another way, we do not shrink back. We do not shrink back like Moses who veiled his face because he knew that the people of God would never be able to fully reflect the glory that God wanted them to reflect. No, Paul and those who preached the gospel he preached do not shrink back, but boldly proclaim the gospel. For it is a boldness that is given by God because the results are not up to us, but up to God. Ours is simply to proclaim. So we can stand firm on what we proclaim. And we can stand firmly because it is also a ministry of truth. A ministry of truth. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4.2. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Part of why Paul can be bold and not shrink back, and the reason the ministry of the Christian is also to be bold, is because it is based in pure reality. It is pure truth. What is that reality? 
Well, look ahead at verse 5. We just read it a moment ago. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What is the truth? Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century was and is a historical fact. Any expert in the study of history has to admit that the evidence for its occurrence and authenticity is beyond that of other widely accepted historical events. It is, in the nomenclature of historical study, a fact. This crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection in which Christ showed himself to hundreds of witnesses provides proof that he is the Messiah, the anointed Savior for whom Israel was looking. That means he is the ultimate ruler and master and sovereign and king over the conquered creation. All that now remains is for him to judge those who are part of the kingdom of darkness and glorify and restore those whom he purchased by his blood and bought by his spirit into his kingdom reign. Once this is complete, the Bible tells us he will recreate heaven and earth so that only his righteousness and his kingdom will remain. Because all of this is truth, Paul has no reason to do anything but simply declare it. He does not need to be like the sophists. He does not need to use manipulation to accomplish his ends or to draw people to his declaration. He can simply declare the truth. But those who are perishing... Those who do not see God's reign and judgment and salvation as good news believe that this news must be massaged and made more palatable. This manipulation in the church has been around since Paul's day, but the version of this that we are most familiar with started to move into the church really and come into its own in the 1980s when the megachurches began to use business marketing principles to draw people to church. And this morphed in the last 40 years into what was known and is known as seeker-friendly ministry, where church was turned into an experience for the curious. And it now shows itself in felt-needs ministry, where the ministry of the church seems to only be seen in meeting practical needs internally and providing outreach to those outside the church. But notice that this is not what Paul is stating as the ministry of himself, the apostles, or even the church as a whole. His ministry is to declare Jesus Christ as Lord. And friends, I would suggest to you that this is the primary ministry of the church as a whole and of every member of every local church that exists within it. And so Paul boldly declares that he and the rest of the apostles refuse to practice any cunning like the charismatic orators of the day, nor will he twist Scripture to suit his own purposes something we do quite often. Not we as a church, we as individuals. No, it is solely by the open statement of the truth that his ministry will be fulfilled. And he will show that he and those he ministers with are commendable on behalf of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, what do we view as our primary ministry and the primary ministry of this church? Is it to convince people to follow Christ by our persuasive speech? Is it to give them an experience that will market the gospel and make them feel special? 
Is it to go and attempt to change the world by our actions without ever preaching with words that Christ is Lord? I would suggest to you, based on biblical truth, that none of these is our ministry. The primary ministry of the true local church, of any faithful pastor and of any faithful Christian, is the same ministry declared here by Paul. It is to declare Jesus Christ as Lord. It is to announce his enthronement and impending judgment. If there are other things that come from that in the midst of our church, if we are able to do some of these other things I've mentioned, great. But this is our not just the preacher, this is our primary ministry to a lost and dying world. Everything we do is meant to build you up and equip you in the faith and transform you into his glory so that you can be heralds of this good news to one another and to those with whom you come into contact with outside these doors. Christian ministry is the declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord. If Satan can't keep you from submitting to him as Lord, then he will surely distract you from telling others about it, all the while convincing you that you are still acting out Christian ministry. I was really nice today. I bought the person behind me in line a coffee. That's what Jesus would want me to do. No, Jesus wants you to declare him as Lord. The response of those who heard Paul say this, though, is the same as many today. It might even be the same that's rolling around in your own head right now. If that is all that there is for Paul, then why do so few respond to it? And why was his ministry so difficult? If this is the empowered ministry of God's Spirit among his church, then why do so few believe in it? Friends, this was the question that drove the church in the 80s to say, we got to do something else. This ain't working this whole declaring Jesus as Lord thing. The sophists are able to convince people to agree with their speech. How come so few agree with yours? Hans, I go on TikTok and see that other churches save 300 people a service. Why does that not happen here? Well, Paul answers, success is not found in numbers. If it were, Jesus would say, wide is the way and many are there that find it. It is found in faithfulness to declaring this truth. Because in that faithfulness, the truth of God's word will never return void. It will always accomplish its work. And its work is not just to save, it is also to blind. The word of God has two works, to both blind and illuminate. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, he's answering a criticism here, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here we see that this ministry that Paul has is also a ministry that blinds. A ministry that blinds. Using the same imagery he just used in chapter 3 to discuss the incompleteness of the old covenant and the completeness of the new, Paul uses this idea of veiled. He's responding to this idea promoted by his critics that Paul's ministry is lackluster and inferior when compared to the super apostles that are more compelling in their speech. 
But friends, what does it matter if you are able to fill a stadium full of people that agree with you if you are telling them lies and inoculating them to the truth of the gospel that Jesus is Lord? It is the antithesis of commendable, productive, and sufficient. Think about it, friends. You can fill an entire church and get them focused on what? Not Jesus, but current events. What are you doing? Or maybe you can bring a large crowd because you can speak to them of virtue and excellence. But think about it, friends. If a person walks into a church and hears that they can do better, they can be better, they can be nicer, and they can change the world with their effort, and that is all they hear, what has just happened? They have been locked into agreement with the ministry of death. Because what will happen is that this self Sufficient work may work for a while, but when their selfishness, their lordship over others, and their hatred at God for not running things according to their program take over, they will curse God and turn from him. Practicing cunning tactics or tampering with God's word to make it more palatable to the seeker will actually do the opposite of what the gospel is intended to do. It will place someone in even further bondage rather than freeing them with the gospel. But if that is the case, the opposing viewpoint then goes, why do so few agree with the gospel? Why do so few submit to the gospel that says Jesus is Lord and those who are his have been conquered by him so that he might rule over them? Well, Paul points out it is because to those who are not Christ's, it is veiled. They're blind to its truth. And they are blind because they are perishing in their voluntary and chosen rebellion against God. And we might cry out, when have I chosen rebellion against God. Every moment of every day where we assert our demands over God and tell him he must answer to us. Every moment where we state by our attitudes, thoughts, and actions that we are king or queen and judge and God and all those he created should bow to our opinions, rules, and expectations. Paul continues, these are blind and the gospel is veiled to them because they have been blinded by the God of this world. We need to pause for a moment and think about this, for we have been declaring clearly, as Paul does, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He is the ruler. So how could someone else be ruler? Well, Jesus gives us a clue when he talks about this in John 12. You can look up at the screen. John 12, 31 through 32. Jesus, speaking of his crucifixion and impending death, he said, "Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus says that there is one who is ruler of this world, and that is Satan. God created man to help rule his creation and gave us a measure of his authority, and we handed that authority over to Satan in the Garden of Eden so that he might be ruler. And he has been allowed a measure of checked sovereignty by God because we gave it to him. But when Christ was lifted up on the cross, he would do something powerful. And this is not a statement of universalism where all humanity, every individual will be saved. In the original Greek of verse 32, you will not find the word people or man. I will draw all to myself, is the wooden translation. In fact, if you take it in its grammatical nature, it's actually an I. When I am lifted up from the ground, I will draw all mine own. And the word draw there has the connotations of dragging them to himself. It's not like a, hey, come over here. It's a grab and a drag into his kingdom. The gospel, according to Mark, pictures this well when he says this, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Friends, Christians are the bounty of Christ's plundering the kingdom of darkness because he has dragged us against our rebellion into his kingdom out of pure, unadulterated grace. All mankind is dead in their chosen sin and rebellion against God's rule, and as such, we have voluntarily become citizens of the kingdom of darkness under the power and reign of the ruler, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the little g, God of this world, the adversary of God. And so God allows Satan to blind the eyes of those who are perishing so that every time the truth of Jesus as Lord is declared, they stiffen their necks even harder. John puts it this way in his gospel that was read to us earlier. John 12, 39, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. So who is it? Is it God? Or is it the little g, God of this world, Satan? Well, it's Satan under the sovereignty of God. God is allowing him to blind the eyes of those who are perishing. And as with Pharaoh at the story of the Exodus, the perishing will hear that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true and living God and king, and it will serve to only harden their hearts even more. I've seen this over and over and over again in my time in ministry. Men and women who are living a life where they are metaphorically choosing the hardest route to go because they want to hold on to control and power and rule in their own life. And then they are presented with the truth that freedom is found in surrendering to Christ as Lord. And rather than joy, this truth brings them into further anger and hatred and defensiveness and isolation and striving for control. There's a whole lot of buts in those conversations. But I, for if their eyes were opened, what they would see is the light of the good news that Christ alone has been given glory by the Father. He alone is master and Lord over all the earth. And he therefore deserves our continual surrender and worship. He deserves for us to stop fighting his rule in our life. And our freedom, our purpose, and our satisfaction does not then go away as if this were bad news. These things are actually found in surrendering to his loving rule. Unfortunately, like Satan, the perishing will not see this as good, but will see it as evil and will continue to lie to themselves that they can be Lord and create a false version of Christ that is, in fact, an idol made in their own liking and in their own image. Brothers and sisters, the scariest part of all of this is that this would be all of us, all of mankind, if God had not intervened. And yet, contrary to our rebellion, our clinging to the rebellion in the kingdom of, the dark, of darkness, he did intervene so that rather than blindness coming at the direct declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord, we would actually hear those words and it would illuminate our hearts and minds. 
It would give us light to the truth because declaring that Christ is Lord is a ministry that illuminates. It's a ministry that illuminates. To the perishing, it will blind. To those that are in Christ, it will illuminate. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me again in 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Friends, Lord is not a title there. It is a statement of authority. The title is Christ. He is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is ruler with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When this good news that Jesus Christ is Lord is declared, it will either blind a person by pressing them further into their rebellion against Christ as Lord because they cannot believe in a God who, they cannot agree with the word that says, they cannot, they are still Lord. And so they harden in rebellion against Christ. Or that same word preached will bring life and light to them. It will illuminate their heart and mind. And Paul's point is, it has nothing to do with the presentation. Nothing to do with the presentation. It has to do with the statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, I could scream at the top of my lungs that phrase, and if someone is to be saved in this room, they will be saved. I could say it as soft and as gentle as possible. And if they are perishing, they will perish. It's the statement of the truth. The truth that Jesus is Lord. It will either bring death, or it will bring life and light. And this is the ministry to which Paul was called, and in which Paul is now speaking to the church at Corinth. The wording here is so similar to what Paul witnessed when Christ first saved him. This is from Paul's recounting of the story of his conversion to Agrippa in Acts 26, 16. Jesus says to Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, notice, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So which is it? Is it that I turn in repentance or is it that God saves me and makes me turn in repentance? The answer? Yes. <laughs> How do you know you're saved? Because you turn. Whose power was it that made you turn? It's the Lord. to open their eyes so that they might turn and they might receive. Jesus opened Paul's eyes so he could go declare the gospel that God would use to open the eyes of the Gentiles. Friends, it's the same reason you and I have had our eyes open to the truth that Jesus is Lord, so that we might go and proclaim the same to those around us, so that if they are Christ's, they will open their eyes to the truth. Brothers and sisters, 
We can become well-versed in public speaking. We can practice our delivery of the gospel till we're blue in the face. We can become apologetic Jesuses, uh, geniuses, not Jesuses, geniuses. <laughs> we can memorize every answer to every criticism in the Bible. We can do all these things, and none of them will make us any more capable of resurrecting dead hearts to life. The only thing that will illuminate the truth to the saved heart is our declaration of Jesus as Lord and the Spirit's grasping of their heart to illuminate that truth. And that is why this is the church's primary ministry. That is why it is my primary ministry and that is why it is your primary ministry. The first event that occurs in the life of a believer, of a Christian that is brought under the Lordship of Christ is what we see here. God acts to shine the light of truth into the heart so that we grasp the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In that moment, God removes the scales from our eyes so that we might realize that God the Father, our creator and provider, is perfectly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who has been given all rule and authority and glory over the cosmos. Friends, this is not something we come to on our own. It is the gift of God. Therefore, we can never boast that we found Christ or that we ushered forth belief on our own. It is the gift of a gracious God in spite of our hardened hearts. Friend, perhaps you are here today and God is doing this very work in you. Perhaps you have never known Christ. Or maybe, more likely, maybe you've been in the church for a very long time. But you're realizing in this series on the Lordship of Christ that you may have had Christ as Savior, but you've never really given your life over to him as Lord. And if that is the case, you haven't had him as Savior. Maybe you're in the church because of tradition, or it's what you grew up with, or it's the one that makes the most political sense to you. In any of these cases, the truth and reality is that Jesus is Lord whether you accept him as such or not. And because this is truth, you will either be his servant in joyous glory or you will become his subject in judgment. Those are the only options. And recognize that if you hold back, if you harden your heart against this truth, even a second, the hardness that happens in that moment may never be undone because it will continue. And so today, follow the words of Christ and do not harden your hearts, but receive what Christ is giving you, his forgiveness, his grace, and his illumination that he is a good and gracious ruler and Lord. And that all he has for you is joy. Today, will you surrender your life to him? Will you surrender finally to his word and to his people? Will you finally surrender your lordship? Or will you keep fighting to be your own ruler, picking and choosing what you want to believe or push aside? Friend, if you want to surrender to him, if that's you, please come talk with me or one of the pastors after the sermon. I would love to walk with you in what it is to call Jesus Lord. Brothers and sisters, 
And I call you that because Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he has given us understanding to this fact by his grace. Brothers and sisters, notice what Paul says after that declaration. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at what's next. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now that Christ has made us his own, we have a ministry just like Paul. Christian ministry is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. And so the first question we must ask as saved believers is how regularly and how readily do we proclaim this truth? How many times did you declare it this week? Or has Satan convinced you that you need to be more skilled at declaring it? Or that it needs to have a more palatable and marketable appeal? Brothers and sisters, the strength of the gospel is not in you, nor is it in this church or in my persuasive capability. It is in the declaration itself, and that should free you. It is the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has been enthroned because of his death and resurrection, his death in our place, taking on our judgment, and his resurrection to glory. And he has captured those that are his own and drawn us into his kingdom so that we might be given eternal life with him under his loving reign. Those that are Christ will hear this news and bow the knee thankfully. Those that are not Christ's will harden their hearts. But either way, Christ is glorified and you have fulfilled your ministry as a servant for his sake. But then within the body of Christ itself, notice that Paul says, your servants for Jesus' sake. He's saying this to the Corinthian church who quite honestly right now is a pain in his side. Your servants for Jesus' sake. As we continue on in this series, this will be a bedrock. For those who are Christ's will be made humble in a way that the world cannot comprehend. And in that humbling, we become servants of one another for the sake of our Lord. And so beginning this morning and into this week, not only do I want you to declare this truth to those around you, but I want to encourage all of us to grab onto this statement from 1 Corinthians 4-5 and meditate on it and determine to apply it in all of our relationships. What does it look like for me to be a servant of those around me for Jesus' sake? Let me ask that question again. What does it look like for me to be a servant of all those around me for Jesus' sake? Friends, this is how you know he has changed your heart, is that you are willing and capable Of doing this. For Jesus has been crowned as Lord, and He has called you and I to serve, not just Him. For friends, when you say, I serve Jesus, and you eliminate the people around you, you're most likely Lord, manipulating His word to your use. But when you have to look one another in the face, and you have to submit to one another and have them submit to you, this is why we do church membership. Something clicks and you recognize, wow, I am asserting my lordship. Maybe I should lay it down. And we do this not just for Christ, but those for whom he died. We can convince ourselves that we serve him, but when he is Lord, we will very quickly see as we allow others into our life if we are their servants for Jesus' sake. And so perhaps Jesus is asking you this week by his text here to serve someone in this church or perhaps in your home, or perhaps in your workplace. 
Perhaps it is service in the form of confession and repentance. Perhaps it is service in discipleship or having a difficult conversation. What does service of others for Jesus' sake look like for you this week? This is not a work that will gain you his grace, but this is an obvious outcome of a heart transformed to his rule. And I pray that the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, will empower us to be a church that knows our ministry, to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, and to then act it out by laying our life down for one another as his servants for the sake of his name. Amen? Amen.